everyone. Welcome to Zon N Canada. I'm your host, Jesse Betteridge. Uh, so in this episode, we're doing another retrospective. Uh, this is a podcast that explores the connections between anime and Canadian media. And while we usually do retrospectives on, you know, things that aired on TV or had some other kind of relevance uh, or are anime, we're actually looking at something that is very much not anime, um, but is a uh, very, very Canadian. Uh, we are looking at G Savior, uh, which it this sucks. <laughs> this movie sucks, but it is so very Canadian. It has lots of important Canadian connections that I think might not be readily obvious to uh, to everyone, and I think not, maybe not everyone is uh, willing to explore in depth. I think we're certainly giving it more attention than it deserves, but this is something I really wanted to talk about for a while on the show, and joining me again is uh, Randy Forbister. Randy, welcome back to the show. Boy, howdy, is this movie boring as hell. Randy, you... you you do a panel at some conventions on on live action anime adaptations, right? You I, you're pretty do, well yeah. versed in the subject. Yes. Uh, I I usually end up going towards the Japanese side of the live action movies because they're a little crazier, a little weirder. Um, but I've I've definitely watched this one uh, a few times now. And uh, where where does it fall in the the grand scheme of uh, of things? Where where would you place G Savior among it, the uh? live-action devil mans and uh, what oh, oh, oh boy this does not even reach the levels of devil man uh <laughs> no, not not even close devil man will will tear your soul out and stomp it yep and just leave it there for two hours um this one just it, it kind of just feels harmless and boring i i think in the in the grand scheme of of anime to live action adaptations it is boring and filled with ill-advised creative decisions, seems very disconnected from the source material that it's adapting. Uh, if you're not familiar with G-Savior, it is a live-action Gundam movie. It was made as part of the Big Bang project for the franchise's 20th anniversary, uh, back at uh, the end of the 90s, and ni- around 1999. Uh, and they, Sunrise and Bandai, they just pretend that this doesn't exist. I am honestly looking back kind of surprised that they even bothered putting it out on DVD here, yeah. uh, given how poorly it was received and how bad they knew it was uh when it came out but it did air on tv asahi in japan in uh in 2000 uh very end of 2000 december 29th uh, and i had a good time slot too i mean it, they were they weren't hiding it it aired in like like 5 or 6 p.m and while it is called a tv movie it actually made its premiere at the okinawan american short film festival uh june 1999 quite a bit before that so I don't know. I think this might have actually, the original intention, I think, might have actually been for this to be seen in theaters, which is crazy. This is this is not theatrical material. No, no. Um, but it's definitely a project where I, I think expectations kept sinking lower and lower. Uh-huh. Uh, so that kind of makes sense. Uh, and, of course, the, the movie famously was shot in Vancouver. It includes many major... Vancouver, Metro Vancouver landmarks that uh, if you live here, uh, you're going to immediately recognize. Or if you watch a lot of things that have been filmed in Vancouver, you will definitely recognize. And if you're one of those people, you'll probably get a little more enjoyment out of especially the second half of this film. Uh, that's certainly the case for me. I get a real a real kick out of seeing uh, Simon Fraser University in the Orpheum Theater uh, showing up and being used the way that they're used, the insane way that they're used 
in the later part of this movie. And this movie definitely has a, a reputation among the SFU anime uh, club. Uh, it oh. uh, a- Every few years, someone rediscovers it. And they're just like, oh, my God, there's a Gundam battle going on at SFU. They never, Even though they never say the word Gundam in this movie once, it is um, definitely weirdly trying to distance itself from its source material. Yeah, that's one of the things I found odd about it is like if if you're making this like big anniversary project and this is like a live action movie is not like a small undertaking and then to just like not even mention any kind of Gundam barely mention like I think the closest like regular terminology we get is just like the sides yeah they they, they that's the biggest connection there is to the franchise is that they have they live in space colonies and they're called sides and they look they look basically like the space colonies in Gundam, and that's pretty much where the comparisons end. It doesn't have yeah. any of the it, it it doesn't reference anything that has any kind of connection to the history of the the franchise, even though it's set in the Universal Century, which is the main timeline for Gundam. Uh, it doesn't have any of the common themes like like the meaning of war. I guess it delves into like war trauma a little bit, mm-hmm. but not not in not in any way that makes me think of Gundam. That's for sure. It does it does go into like uh, Gundam storytelling tropes mm-hmm. a little more. Like the theme's not there at all, but like the like the it, even though it came out like two years before, so much of this reminded me of Gundam Seed. I know that's what I thought too. In fact, I there, there's a few things that pop up. I'm just like, did they, like, did this come? Did this idea come from the same meeting that they came up with ideas for seed, or uh, they came up with plot elements for seed from? Because there's, I, I was kind of feeling that in in there. I mean, it's all like, obviously very very lost by the time it, um, you know, becomes what it became. Yeah, but like, um, just just go go into it a little. Uh, the character of Mimi is really like a proto-flay. I was going to say the exact same thing. The entire time. Thing. Like, and, that's all I could think about. Yeah. And, well, I, got, I, got, I have a few things to say about Mimi uh, when, we, <laughs> when we go go on later. The real star of this movie. Um, yeah, yeah but, but as far as uh, as Canadian movies connected to anime go, I'm not sure if uh, if this is the most Canadian or the Crying Freeman movie is the most Canadian. I guess i got to do an episode on that one, too. I uh, actually didn't think of that before. Um, but we're gonna we're gonna talk about G Savior today, and I think with, with that weird disconnection from Gundam, um, I, I think what's most interesting is not so much the connection to Gundam, or rather, rather its relevance doesn't lie so much in its connection to Gundam, but its connection to other Canadian uh, television movie productions. Uh, there's a lot of overlap mm-hmm. in this, along uh, with shows like Star- Stargate SG One and the Battlestar Galactica remake from uh, from 2003, 2004, and uh, throughout the 2000s, and but more recently, we're seeing a significant overlap uh, apparent between G. Savior and Hallmark directed TV movies. Um, <laughs> the people who w- worked on this, like pretty much all of the major names, uh, almost all of them are. Th- that's what they're doing now. That's uh, that's where the money is in Vancouver production <laughs> right now. It's um, oh, very similar to Winnipeg too. Oh yeah, 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 big time. Yeah, they 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 film that stuff like pretty close to where I live uh, over, over in Maple Ridge. And I know they, they do a lot of that over in Winnipeg as well. It's, yeah. uh, <laughs> it's uh, that's, that, that's where everything's moving right now. And it's, mm-hmm. it's kind of funny to see all this stuff reconverging uh, where, where it all came together with, with G Savior before. Um, but yeah, let's, let's um, just start. Why don't we kind of get into our own background with G Savior? I right? don't, we have 
I don't know if you have that much to say about it, but uh, when when did you first see this movie, Randy? I think I first saw it probably probably ten years ago when I first like was investigating Gundam a little more. I was like, oh, there's there's this crazy live action movie, mm-hmm. and I was like, well, finally one day I just decided to sit down and watch it with a group of friends, and very quickly it just became like it, it was just so hard to watch. Cause it just, nothing really happens. It's not, it's not insultingly bad. Uh, and the fun, the stuff that's fun to make fun of kind of gets old pretty quickly. But so we ended up sitting through it anyway. Uh, and I, I was just kind of just enamored with this little weird production. I ended up, uh, one of my Holy Grail purchases when I went to Japan in 2019 was a G Savior model kit that I ended up getting. I hear it's a really impressive, model kit it is a, it is a good kit it's still unbuilt i was going to build it for this podcast but I, I had some health issues that uh didn't let me sit down for a long period of time uh but i'm going to be building that as soon as i can yeah i mean the g savior it is a good design um kunio okawara who designed the original gundam he did the mech designs for this uh this movie and its spinoffs there are multiple spinoffs for G Savior. This was this was supposed to be a big deal. Um we we look at it now and we think, oh, they just they just crapped this thing out because they wanted to. But like I think this was there were definitely large ambitions behind this whole thing that um ended catastrophically to say the <laughs> least. Um and, and part of that was this really high is it a was it a perfect grade model or um uh, or just uh, a, just a high grade. High grade, yeah. Yeah, just a high grade. Yeah, but it's a you know a really well designed model with a really well designed mobile suit, and yeah, it's, it's just so weird that such lavish treatment was given to the arguably one of the worst things connected to this <laughs> franchise by far. G Savior w- w- for myself, um, obviously when I first was discovering Gundam, like after the time that Gundam Wing aired, um, I heard murmurs online about it. Uh, as this new terrible, terrible Gundam thing that had emerged, and nobody seemed to, again the theme, the ongoing theme with G Savior is nobody wants to talk about it. So I'm just like, okay, I guess nobody wants to talk about it. Let's just leave it at that then. Um, the first time I actually saw footage of the film was a couple of years later, in either 2002 or 2003, uh, either the first or second Anime Evolution uh, convention uh, in 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 Burnaby or Metro Vancouver. Uh, that convention was held at Simon Fraser University. And at the closing ceremony, they made sure to play a clip of one of the final battles in the film, which was, I quote-unquote, filmed at the university. I think more more accurately, they used the, the university as the basis for the CGI animation. There's that, None of this film is shot outside. <laughs> Everything is on a soundstage or in an indoor, um, or some kind of indoor setting. Uh, but they they used... Simon Fraser University, because it's so weird and quasi-futuristic looking, to stage this uh, this mobile suit battle at the end of the movie. And if I wound up going to Simon Fraser University, that's where I went to school. And it's still, I still think it's just wild and crazy to see that happening. Um, and, and of course, if you know, even if you've never been to SFU, you've seen it in Battlestar Galactica and Stargate. It is used so frequently. It is abused as a filming location. In both of those shows, and in many other things, it's so it's so recognizable just because of that, and that 
kind of stuck with me. It was it was quite I don't even remember when I first actually sat down and watched the movie. I think it was probably many, many years later, probably seven or eight years later. And, you know, I found at the time that it wasn't worth sitting through the whole thing just to get to that uh, SFE mm-hmm. stuff. But, you know, it um, hits me hard. I got to say. And also, I had completely forgotten that uh, this the G Savior is unveiled on the stage of the Orpheum Theater halfway through the movie, which is <laughs> that that is so, so unbelievably stupid. Even if you're not even if you've never been to the Orpheum Theater before, like you can tell that this um, filming location is being uh, improperly used for this type of scene. <laughs> it, it's just yeah. it's yeah, like. The location scouting was like zero effort in, into anything. I, I really want to say that G Savior was a movie that uh, our tax dollars paid for, but I think that might actually not be true because one thing that surprised me the most when I was watching the credits for this film, uh, there didn't seem to be any indication that any tax credits were used in its production. Um, and that that may be the most inept part of this film is that this project where everything is just constantly deferred to the lowest bidder, where mm. everything is you know obviously moved to Vancouver just to keep costs as low as possible. They didn't even try to get the tax credits, which they certainly would have qualified for. Yeah. Um, what the hell was this company thinking? <laughs> like how like how how incompetent can you get? That's like that's the most obvious thing, and they didn't mm-hmm. even do that for this movie. They could have they could have cut their costs even more. Yeah, I don't, I, I don't even know how to comment on that further. That, that really surprised me. Probably something with, like, Japanese committees and stuff. They probably wouldn't want to cover the tax credits. Like, that's just what I'd assume, because I know, like, Japanese companies, when they're filming or creating things, uh, are, like, very precious about lots of it. So I, I figure that must have something to do with something. Yeah. Well, the problem is we don't... It's not really clear how much of this was Sunrise and Bandai and how much of it was the company that they partnered with for its production, which is called Polestar Entertainment. Um, that is a company we don't know a whole lot about, uh, which is one theme I found when uh, when researching this movie and just seeing what other people have said about it in the past. Um, and, and again, the, the recurring theme, no one ever wants to talk about G-Savior. Um, because of that, there are like no interviews or, or in-depth overviews of its production. Tomino, Yoshiyuki Tomino commented on it once, and I think he just basically dismissed it and and the stance seemed to be that yeah it's canon because it's in the universal century but it's set like 200 years out from any other canonical event in there so far that it can be easily disregarded and ignored completely mm-hmm. um but you're, you're you don't see anyone really really talking about this very much so i i wanted to try and clarify uh as much as i could about the background of this film and you know it is possible that so, Maybe maybe Sunrise or Bandai they were they were too proud to apply for tax credits or maybe it's just not what something they wanted to do or just they were just ignorant of it or it could mm-hmm. just be the incompetence of Polestar Entertainment the the, the company who they partnered with I, th- I think tracing G Savior's story back usually again we don't we don't we only go back to a few years before it was produced a lot of the time but I think it's also important to keep in mind that Sunrise since almost the beginning of the franchise they have had aspirations to produce a live-action Gundam film, go- going all the way back to even before Zeta Gundam came out, back to the early 80s. Um, I, 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 you've read Tom Winnicke's, um article on when Gundam came to Hollywood? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I, I've read bits and pieces of it. Yeah, so that's a, yeah. a, that's a really great blog article overviewing sort of, sort of a concept and pitch that was developed for a live-action 
Gundam film back, I think, in 1981 or 1982. So this was shortly after Gundam was canceled on Japanese TV and then started to gain more notoriety in the reruns. More than notoriety, it became a, a smash hit in the reruns. And I think a big problem with Sunrise and Bandai's approach to releasing Gundam internationally, or at least in Western countries, was their ambitions were always too high. And that, that kind of makes sense when you when you realize, like, oh, they didn't want to release the cartoon here, but they did want to look into getting a, a movie made. And not, not just a movie, they mm-hmm. wanted to have CGI uh, be used to create the mobile suits even all the way back then when mm-hmm. it was very much in its infancy in in films and like the idea of doing a a mech battle or animating um mechas it it was just not something that could have been done then it was like it's even even competent attempts throughout the 90s would d- didn't look very good even if yeah, yeah. like n- there's no way to make 90s cg look good and like as as i think film history has proven those like CG efforts have only gotten worse and worse uh, in retrospect from like the nineties and mm-hmm. like even some of the stuff in the eighties, like none of that stuff really holds up well uh, unless like, I the only thing I can think of that kind of looks okay is like the, the beauty and the beast sequence. And that's an animated movie. That's not even like a, a, a live action movie. Yeah. Well, you, you yeah. look at movies like Jurassic Park and Terminator two, the CGI holds up pretty well in that, mm-hmm. but it's okay, because yeah. it's used yeah. so sparingly. Mm-hmm. and it, it's not used for something that's the center of attention constantly yeah um, even even with the dinosaurs in jurassic park it's only some shots that mm-hmm. are done that way that's true. um and they're they're it's obscured a lot of the time yeah um uh, i i my mind me being who i am my mind goes to power rangers and mm-hmm. the power ranger movie and what what a travesty the final megazord battle is in that with the with the cg it's awful it's yeah. it's completely horrendous because uh, they they try that weird chrome filter on like all of the suits and and everything and it just I, I don't think I've seen something that looks worse uh, as far as like a professionally produced film like that mm-hmm. like even even G Savior looks better than that oh yeah for to, sure to to whatever it can look yeah I, I mean the the CGI work which you know isn't great it, it was like the central thing uh, at the pitch of this movie from the beginning. Um, also, just in, on the note of, of doing mecha in anime, I did want to highlight the film Robot Jocks, which was done in the early 90s. But it was all done in stop motion, like kind of when stop motion was at its peak. If, if you've ever seen that movie or never seen that movie, I recommend checking it out. They used to play it on space all the time. But uh, it, it really shows you what the better approach to, to doing mech and, or, or like a mech live action at that at that point would have been. Like the idea of trying to do that in CGI was just not... Not not something that would be considered. But I, I think, uh, obviously, Sunrise's aspirations to create that live-action film in the 80s went nowhere. Uh, and we don't really know what happened after that. But I think it's pretty safe to say that it, this idea did not go off the table. I think certain producers at Sunrise and Bandai, or Sunrise and then in the 90s Bandai, when, when Bandai purchased Sunrise, mm-hmm. I think some people wanted this to happen. With G Savior, uh, its production can be traced back to 1995, and at that time, an all CGI promotional trailer was commissioned to sell this idea to to Sunrise execs. So this CGI, you you can't see it anywhere. It is it is lost media. It is nowhere. You can find screenshots and descriptions of what happens uh, in this trailer, but the the footage is not not available. Uh, and it's also completely different from the final film, both in terms of production and plot. Uh, I don't think it had any connection to the companies that did 
the CGI work in the final film or anyone who did the no connection to Vancouver, no connection to Polestar or anything. Uh, and apparently had a budget of about 200 million yen, which is like 350,000 Canadian in, in mid-90s money. And I, to what degree this was supposed to be shown to the public, I'm not so sure. Apparently it was shown at one event in 1997. I wasn't able to confirm which one. Uh, but you could you could watch it on an airplane. Uh, it was made available <laughs> on JAL flights to Honolulu, of all things. Probably just uh-huh. as like filler material to put on their, mm-hmm. their entertainment system. Uh, but, you know, obviously there was a... a at Sunrise, some kind of big push going on to get this CGI-centered live-action project off the ground. And But again, all, all we have of it now are, are screenshots um, that were apparently published in a magazine in the 90s. Uh, it's, again, not very clear where things went from there or who or what particular people at Sunrise were, were even pushing this. But eventually it became part of the Big Bang project for Gundam's 20th anniversary. And that next step, obviously... Uh, you're going to make this movie, where are you going to take it to? Well, they went to Polestar Entertainment, and we don't really know very much about this company. One misconception that I see coming up a lot is that Polestar was a Canadian company. They are not. They were based in Beverly Hills. Uh, They also no longer exist. Uh, I don't think I need to point that out, but uh, (laughs) this company is gone, and they barely existed to begin with. So I, I think that this was this kind of came together at that level with Polestar as like a, an attempt to try and get a Hollywood company to pick this up and eventually pro- probably didn't reach anyone they wanted to. And like the, the people who had, at Polestar were probably the only ones who wanted to take on the project. And, you know, mm-hmm. just to, again, everything just kind of going to the lowest bidder. So Polestar Entertainment, they I was able to dig up their old website on archive.org on the, the Wayback Machine. Okay. Uh, there's not a lot to see there. So there, there are only three productions listed on Polestar Entertainment's website. Uh, G-Savior, mm-hmm. um, a television adaptation of Turn of the Screw, uh, which huh. I can't... Of course, that's, that was the poem that became the basis of The Haunting of Bly Manor, which just came out on Netflix um, yeah. uh, a, a year or two ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, I searched and searched. I could not find any evidence that this production went anywhere uh, or even was in any serious development phase. Mm-hmm. All I could find is the one mention of it on this website. So the other thing listed on there was a horror movie called Hobbs End. Uh, and in fact, interestingly, the website for Polestar Entertainment was actually HobbsEnd.com. Oh. So <laughs> Hobbs End was obviously at the center of, uh, of, of what this company was trying to do. Uh, the film itself was wound up being a direct-to-video horror film that came out in 2002, uh, which is quite a bit longer, uh, or quite a while after this website would have been created uh, mm-hmm. in 1999, early 2000. So, you know, the impression I get is that this production company was made to make this movie, and that G-Savior was something that they just kind of took on in, in oh, that whole weird. process. But again, not a lot of info, can't really verify that, it's hard to tell. I can say that Hobbs End did get released, VHS, and I think it got a DVD release as well. Uh, you can probably find it around if you look hard enough. Uh, but all I could find is there was a single a, a single uh, dailies clip of it on YouTube. I couldn't even find a proper trailer or anything. And I did find some reviews, and they were all very, very bad. <laughs> yeah, um, I, I, I'm looking at the IMDb, IMDb page right now, yeah. and the first review is, thought it would never end. <laughs> <laughs> but interesting credits in this movie, Hobbs End. Uh, so we see... Two of the stars of G Savior are in Hobbs End. Uh, Brennan <laughs> Elliott, who plays Mark Curran, the main character in G Savior, we'll 
we'll get to him in a bit. And the the you know who we already mentioned, Mimi Devere, uh, played by Katarina yeah. Conti in G Savior. Uh, Katarina Conti is the star of this movie. Uh, and interestingly, her only two credits anywhere ever are G Savior and Hobbs End. Mm-hmm. Um, we we look a little closer at the movie. This movie was made by one of the two executive producers on G Savior. So that, so there were two names who I think they're both involved with with Polestar Entertainment. There's Anthony Scala. Uh, I can't I can't really find very much about him. Uh, but the other guy, Philip David Segal. There's a lot of info about this guy. And I think that he was probably a little more central to the creation of this film than anyone has considered. Uh, he, he has qu- quite a history. He was a you know he was a director of drama development at Columbia and then in the in the mid 80s and before moving over to ABC Television. Uh, he was a programming executive there. He worked on mm-hmm. Twin Peaks, Thirty uh, Something in China Beach. Uh, then interestingly, he apparently was in talks with the BBC as early as 1989 about Doctor Who. And later on in the 90s, after Doctor Who was cancelled, he apparently was what you would call the... I don't think it's accurate to call him the showrunner, but he's designated as such on Wikipedia Mm -hmm. for the 1996 Doctor Who television movie that aired on Fox. Um, Mm -hmm. I haven't seen that movie. I'm told it's terrible. Uh, But it, it seems that even though he wasn't the director or anything, he was very much the guy who was behind that he, he is the designated yeah. showrunner he he made that he made that movie happen uh and again also has but just executive producer credit on that interestingly his his wikipedia article does mention hobbs end uh and when you click on hobbs end on there it just loops back to his wikipedia article so that oh yeah, yeah. it kind of tells you about that yeah but he but it doesn't mention polestar entertainment but i i think that he was one of the lead guys behind that company and i think that he kind of was the one who guided G Savior's production. I, I, th- I think he had his hands in this more than any account we've, we've really seen. Um, apparently he, uh, he's done work in a, in a, a lot of, in a lot of um, reality TV shows since then. Yeah. I think Ice, Ro- a... Ice Road Truckers, he did a yeah. few years ago and yeah. And just, he had fingers in a lot of stuff. Pretty, pretty much typical Hollywood television executive type. Um, yeah, no kidding. Like, yeah. I'm, look, I'm looking at this too, and just like his his follow up projects to G Savior being like being Andromeda and Mutant X, I can see those influences in G Savior. Absolutely, a yeah. lot. Uh, so that doesn't surprise me that he would be like the guy with the most fingers in the pie here. Yeah, and, and I think this is something that they I hear brought up a lot is that. And, and you can double uh, see just by watching the movie that uh, G Savior repurposed the uniforms from the Starship Troopers movie, and they're, they're the uniforms for the consent soldiers mm-hmm. in this. Um, so they 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 smuggled a, a lot of things into this project, but yeah, those those Starship Troopers uniforms they get around. Yeah, uh, yeah they've totally. been yeah like they they've been in Firefly, and they were in um, a Power Ranger season as well. Yeah. For sure, that, that's for sure. Repurposed props are a huge part of G Savior, both for what they <laughs> used and what got reused from them. What one other name that I found connected to uh, Polestar Entertainment I wanted to highlight, uh, Rod Conti. So you don't see him prominently credited in anything. I think he has a. I think he's an assistant to uh, Philip Segal in the credits for G Savior. But when I looked up um just a sort of just a corporate listing for Polestar Entertainment he is the contact for that company and Rob Con- Rod Conti same last name as Katarina Conti who plays 
um, who plays Meanie in this movie. Uh, so as far as I can tell, Rod Conti, I think he actually is an executive at Sport Fox Sports now. Um, and he doesn't seem to be married to Katarina. I think I think they might be relatives. I think there's some. Okay. Uh, I think that might be a sister or cousin or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, that, some kind of nepotism thing going on here for sure, but mm-hmm. uh, n- not enough information about either of those people to really draw any any conclusions. But that um, I, I found that to be really really interesting. I don't think we'll ever know uh, exactly how how deep this goes, but I guess it's all pretty typical for this kind of production, though. <laughs> I yeah. No, no reason to get conspiratorial about it. No. Um, but yeah, so that's that, that's the situation with Polestar Entertainment. So again, they were not a Canadian company. They were a Hollywood-based production company. And I think that what ultimately happened here is that G-Savior being moved to Vancouver was purely just one of many cost-cutting measures. And it, it just seemed like the project spiraled out of control from there and uh, and just kept getting cut back and cut back and... It might have been because they were under the gun to get it out in time for the, the 20th anniversary in 1999, which they technically didn't because uh, it <laughs> only had the one screening. Um, but, yeah, I think this, as I said before, uh, high ambitions into this project just kept getting deferred down to uh, or, or getting downgraded to, ver- to very, um, very low expectations. Um, and that's just kind of wound up how it probably wound up being the way it was. Mm-hmm. Um yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, like, like this is definitely uh, the definition of a of a made for TV sci-fi movie. Uh, just like start to finish. Like this is something that I could see running at like 2 a.m. on Space Channel that you just kind of randomly flip on and don't think anything of and just watch them like just do a by the numbers kind of space story. That's the other thing. I'm surprised that this never aired on TV outside yeah. of Japan either. Like this. You think this would have been perfect schlock to to like again like you said run on space at early in the morning or something or yeah. even even on daytime TV in the U.S. But it just it just got the home video release here and that was it. But on the at the same time like uh, considering that Sunrise really doesn't like this project maybe we're lucky we got that much. Yeah, don't care. Um, one other detail uh, I forgot to mention is that when this aired on Japanese TV it was dubbed in Japanese as well. I've seen estimates for the final budget for this film ranging between ranging between five million and nine million dollars uh, i i would definitely skew <laughs> towards the lower end of that yeah, yeah again. and I'd, I'd, I'd have to believe most of that went to the cg absolutely well. yeah because like as for the sets like where these sets surely weren't made just for g savior absolutely not these are yeah, all exactly. all repurposed from something else they are mm-hmm. very generic uh the props the, pro- the props are so cheap looking they're like like any any kind of like control room setup or, or any kind of computers. They're just old monitors with cardboard around them, basically. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Food coloring, so much food coloring. You the, you know, you, ha- you have these um, these, these lab scenes that have the the, the most, um, the, the, ho- the hokiest looking formulas. And then, like during parties, they're just, they're just drinking water with, with strange food coloring. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. They're, they're really, um, really weren't putting a lot of thought into, no. into any of that stuff. But the thing about the, and with the CGI, I mean, it's it's uh, obviously just doing this in CGI in the 90s wasn't a good idea to begin with. Mm-hmm. Um, but e- even when you consider that, uh, man, they they really the mech designs just look so bad. They look so like like they, like they've had the life drained out of them. There's no color. They all look mm-hmm. just kind of they're all kind of toned down to this light gray. Yeah, and it's uh it's just so unpleasant to look at. Yeah. Um, which, and as we mentioned before, like 
you know, mech designs by Kunio Okawara. They were good. Like, these are good-looking robots. And you can see that in the model kit. Th- this, yeah. film ha- this film had a PS2 game sequel mm-hmm. released as well. Again, part of a, a, a small mini-franchise fueled by large ambitions for G-Savior. The game, obviously, is terrible, but the mech designs translate into that game much better than they do into this film. Yeah. yeah. I, I started I started watching some of the cutscenes from that game. Uh I, I ended up not, not being able to finish, but like all of, all of the dialogue is in English too. Which yeah. was interesting. Like like it's subtitled in Japanese, but like you can hear the voiceover all in English. Yeah, it looks like I was look, poking around about that a little bit. I think it was uh Mostly just expats doing those voices, but mm-hmm. yeah, oh, yeah, again, trying to maintain that uh, that that Western, I guess, Western cinema feel that they yeah. were trying to evoke with with this franchise in general, yeah. which was yeah. Oh, yeah. It, it's not good voice acting. No, 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 no. <laughs> but it, it is it is in English. I can I can objectively say that it is in, in English. Yeah, and uh, I guess on the on the topic of the the larger franchise, um, so that they had. In addition to this video game, um, there was also a making of documentary that aired at the same time uh, that this film did on TV. That is, I wish I could find that, but that is also lost, uh, or at least I've, it does not seem to be preserved anywhere. Um, I, I'd love to take a look at that thing and see how they depict the production of this uh, of this movie, but um, that that seems to be lost media. If anyone knows where that is, please. Please let me know because I'd, I'd really love to see that and see how they how they spin that for a, for a TV audience. There's also a three part novelization of G Savior. Uh, there's a radio drama prequel that was broadcast on FM radio and and released on on CD shortly after, which was not uncommon for for anime stuff at that time. But I, I just th- think it's funny because that prequel clarifies a lot of the po- plot points that are not communicated at all in this film. And, of course, as we mentioned, one very nice uh, model kit. P- possibly a movie dwarfed by its own um, spinoffs, but the quality of any of this stuff is, uh, is is up for debate at best. Yeah. Oh, and also the, the Japanese broadcast had its own uh, ending theme in Japanese. The title of the song is Orb, uh, another possible <laughs> Gundam Seed connection. Yeah. <laughs> but, and that, that was not included on the Western release at all, though. Before we talk uh, about the film itself, let's um, let's take a look at the cast and crew. Uh, so this is where we see a lot of the overlap between between other productions. The, the director is Graham Campbell. He he is uh, very much a, a uh, an episodic director kind of guy. He's had his hands in lots of stuff like Degrassi, being Erica, just mostly directing random episodes. Um, never directs anything for more than a few episodes. I, I didn't see any credits where he's like um, story editor or. Uh, or, or writing, you know, longer-running plot lines in, in any particular show. Notably, and I think everyone is gonna, everyone who has looked into this movie has probably noticed this uh, upon researching this. He is mostly directing Hallmark Christmas movies. Uh, in fact, he has one that um, is all scheduled to come out this year, or he, he did one just last year. He has more coming out this year. Uh, that's, um, I think, that's very much where he's where he's found his niche now. Um, we mentioned uh, Mutant X. Uh, he actually also wrote some episodes of Mutant X as well uh, in in 2001, um, similar to Philip Segal. So, uh, other interesting overlaps there. Yeah, like th- those uh, Hallmark movies. They're they're profitable for the people who are working on them like they're a steady steady source of income for d-list actors and directors that's for sure so the story and screenplay uh for this film 
There were two credited writers. So the first writer is Stephanie Pennessy. Uh, this is her only credit in anything ever. Uh, she is not does doesn't have any a, any listing in anything else. Only G Savior. So I don't hard to say who this person is, how much input they actually had on the script. I, I think they're from Hollywood and not Vancouver. So probably from part of the the pro, pro, probably did some work based in Polestar specifically. More prominently, the other writer on this film was Mark Amato. Also mm-hmm. worked on Mutant X as well as Earth Final Conflict. Also, despite the fact that he's based in Hollywood uh, rather than Vancouver, he's also working on Hallmark Christmas movies. He's written yeah. a whole bunch of them. No no overlap with, with Graham Campbell or the other actors who were in this film, but he has yeah. uh, he's been pumping them out since 2015. And uh, uh, and let's not forget the classic show uh, Tripping the Tripping Rift. Tripping the Rift, yes. He, was, uh, he wrote a whole bunch of that one. Jeez. And, uh, yeah, and he earlier he worked on Extreme Ghostbusters, Men in Black TV series, so he did some animation writing as well. Um, he wrote one, one episode of the Harry and the Hendersons TV series. Mm-hmm. That seems to be his first credit. Yeah. But yeah, definitely, definitely follows the trend of, of the other creatives we, we've seen in that. But he, he seems to be the, uh, the, the biggest contributor to the script, um, on this one from, from what I can see. So where we start to see the, uh, the real overlaps with things like Battlestar Galactica and Star, Stargate SG-1 is when we get into things like director of photography. Joel Ransom uh, was the director of photography for this movie. Uh, he actually shot the Battlestar Galactica miniseries. Uh, so not the not the full series of Battlestar Galactica, but he shot the original like pilot, I think it was four or five episodes, that, yeah, that aired in yeah. 2003. But um, yeah, so that, that's a major person who worked on Battlestar Galactica. The art director for G-Savior was the production designer, for Stargate SG-1 and Atlantis, also the movie Night at the Museum, and his current and uh, most recently the credited as the art director on Arrow as well. And then for assistant art director, we have Doug McLean. He was the art director for Battlestar Galactica and Caprica. So again, we don't have like a there's no direct overlap between uh, the staffing uh, for, for for these productions, but like you know these people are working together. Uh, more mm-hmm. of the general production crew like they're probably they're probably working on multiple projects they they have workflows they they know how to work together yeah their their whole method carries on between stargate sg1 between g savior between battlestar galactica and you know it's significant that the production designer and art directors um for for this went on to to work in battlestar galactica um because many many things i think a lot of the techniques that w- were used um questionably in g savior were honed much better in in battlestar galactica you you can yeah. see that in the way that like cockpits are are filmed uh, mm-hmm. in the costume design just in the general approach because battlestar, battlestar galactica was also a super low budget production like i don't think they had that much more to work with than g savior did but it is uh, a significantly more competent <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, end product overall better. And uh, and yeah. I, mean, I think a big part of that was just learning how to do this stuff in in something like uh, in G Savior. I think, I think yeah, a lot, again, just a lot of overlap and not just talent, but also method and uh, just relationships between between staff and stuff. Yeah, like because when once you're working with like the same people doing the same kind of like sci-fi sets, you're gonna like keep learning and improving on that too. And that's like like I assume there's not many people whose specialty is sci-fi set design in vancouver it's probably a it's probably a pretty small group of people yeah i mean i mean they uh, yeah but a lot of stuff not so much now but definitely back then during the Mm -hmm. the late 90s and early 2000s that g 
just became a a, a niche that was yeah honed in on here. So oh yeah. So so it's you know it's it's those same that same crew, those same people just kind of doing their thing. And it's G Saviors. It is an important step in that evolution. You can you can see how it all uh, how it all grew through that. So uh, you know, like I said at the beginning, G Savior, its connections to Gundam are maybe less interesting. I think the place that it sits on among those other Vancouver productions is uh, is quite notable. It, it's obviously that kind of that stuff kind of ended with Battlestar Galactica as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, but even then, you look at Battlestar Galactica that was one of the major shows that ushered in the current um the the current trend of prestige TV as well. Hard to say how much of that uh that trend kind of translated into um sci-fi on TV. Maybe maybe we'll we'll, we'll touch on that a bit later. But first, I think we got a one other staff member uh worth highlighting. Maybe the most noteworthy person who worked on this film was actually the composer John Debney. So he he's best known for his Oscar nomination for The Passion of the Christ. He was also nominated for an Annie uh, for Emperor's New Groove. Uh, you look him up, he has done so much. He, he has a very storied history of uh, of composition in film and television. I don't even know where to start. Is he, what's his most recent thing? He worked on the Orville, Young Sheldon. Oh, God. Sticks out a little more. But yeah, g- going back, uh, original Hocus Pocus and its sequel. Um, oh, wow. He worked on Liar Liar. Inspector Gadget movie, uh, <laughs> uh, Spy Kids, Cats and Dogs, uh, Princess Diaries, Jimmy Neutron film, um, Snow Dogs, Elf, Looney Tunes back in action. Again, Passion of the Christ, where he was nominated for an Academy Award. Uh, Spider-Man 2 did additional music alongside Danny Elfman. Uh, Sin City, he, he's done so much. And, you know, obviously g Saver was just uh, another project. And the music is not that great. <laughs> I, I, I don't think he's necessarily uh, always going to give his best in, in, for something like this, but he, no. you know, he, he contributed what was needed for this yeah. project to say the least. Yeah. Like th- th- this, I think this is not a project you do because you love the idea. This is a project you do because you want the money. Exactly. And, and I think that's, that shows in every single aspect of this movie's production. Uh, so let's talk a little about the cast too. So we, we've already mentioned Mark, uh, sorry, we already mentioned Brennan Elliott. He plays our, uh, very bland hero, Mark Curran. Um, and, uh, at the, at that time, he was best known for his recurring role on the Lifetime medical series, Strong Medicine. Uh, he's had lots of minor roles over the years on shows like the 4400 and Cedar Cove. Um, most recently, he starred opposite, uh, Lacey Chabert in the Crossword Mysteries, Hallmark television movies, which are, <laughs> um, mysteries based in crossword puzzles. Uh, and they have made, they have made, um, quite a few of those. It's, uh, it's been an ongoing tradition on, on Hallmark for, for a while now. And, uh, I believe even, uh, Brandon Elliott is getting into the Christmas movie thing. He's been in at least, um, one or two of them now. I would expect to see him in more. <laughs> mm-hmm. Oh, you know, three? Three or four. I see I see at least three or four <laughs> listed here. So, he, yeah, he's been in it for a while, and he's probably going to uh, keep that going for uh, for a while longer. Yeah, um, as long uh, as he can. Uh, notably, he is also one of the very few people who have actually spoken publicly about his work on G-Savior. He didn't say much. Um, he, he, he did mention on Twitter, he said, I have to be honest, it was one of my first jobs ever, so I guess it was an experience of just trying to figure it all out, but it was a fun film. You know, I, I guess that might uh, indicate that at least uh, the people involved did not have a bad time making this movie, uh, at the very least. So, mm. 
Um, maybe that's a good sign. Uh, so Enika Okuma stars as Cynthia Graves. Uh, so notably, she is the voice of Lady Un in Gundam Wing. Uh, she is also she also played Jade in Shadow Raiders, and uh, most recently Tracy Nash in Rookie Blue. Uh, if that's your thing, and we, then we go back to uh, again as we mentioned before, Katarina Conti, uh, Mimi Devere, who is I I think the wife of Mark Curran in this. They they seem they seem to be married, if not fiance. Yeah, yeah. They're either married or or, or engaged. Yeah. Uh, also a credited producer on the film, going back to the. Uh, very likely connection she had with Polestar, um, mm-hmm. Polestar Entertainment. Yeah, she uh, <laughs> she she's a standout in this movie for sure. She's she's a character you'll remember. Um, yes. And and, and I, like I didn't realize this the first couple times I saw the movie, but looking at how things played out recently, I think I think she is kind of like a prototype of of Flay Ulster. I think that was just sort of a character archetype that found its way into the final version of this film, and also yeah. found its way into Gundam Seed, which. Uh, if, if that is the case, um, raises questions about just the general scripting method of uh, of, of these Gundam projects. But mm-hmm. when, as soon as you said that, I was like, yeah, I was going to make the same observation. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Mimi Devere. But we also have David Lovgren as the uh, as Mark's uh, c- uh, former commanding officer, Jack Hall. Uh, he's a Vancouver-based character actor. He has been in countless things, Millennium, um, The X Files. If it's been filmed in Vancouver, almost guaranteed. That he has been in it at some point. Uh, he was also in Cool Runnings, in a in a, in a minor role, and hmm. uh, and also Antitrust. So again, I, I'm not going to list all this stuff. Uh, he was also in Intelligence, the the CBC show from like 2006. So he's he's yeah again, uh, very uh, very familiar face in Vancouver productions. Uh, same goes for Hrothgar Matthews, who played Philippe, who's the leader of or the the guy they meet up with um, with the Illuminati, who are good guys in this movie. <laughs> Uh, again, another another Vancouver-based actor. You've seen him in a million things. Kenneth Welsh, um, Wy- Wyndham Earl from Twin Peaks. Uh, I might add in the the bad episodes of Twin Peaks. Uh, he's General <laughs> Garneau, who is like the villain. Oh, okay. Yeah. The, the the villain. They sure they sure drive that home uh, in uh-huh. this movie. I mean, he does a he he knows what he's doing in that role for better or worse. And I I think he was he was okay for for what he was for what was expected of him. Countless. Low-budget movies and TV productions, also in the X-Files. Yeah. <laughs> um, again, basically a character actor, mostly in, in, in television productions. And uh, also, uh, blink and you miss a cameo from Sam Vincent, uh, mm-hmm. who would go on to play Atherin in Gundam Seed. He is the, the pilot of the uh, the escape shuttle that uh, Gen- General Garneau is on at the very end. Uh, and and uh, also, um, as Counselor Graves, uh, Cynthia Graves' father, is Blue Mankuma, who I think... Uh, at least listeners of this show will probably most likely recognize as Tigatron in, in Beast Wars and Gigabyte in Reboot. Countless other uh, live-action Vancouver productions. So yeah. these are these are these are familiar faces to anyone who watches a lot of uh, a lot of TV that's been that's been made here. Uh, yeah. but interestingly, despite that, top billing uh, at, during the credits of this movie is not given to any of the actors or the director or the writers. It's given to the special effects company, um, which was. Not the special effects were not done in Vancouver; they were done in Hollywood. Which again goes back to this idea that I think the CGI element of this movie was supposed to be like the big um, up front and center feature of it. Uh, yeah. And yet it's the the part that has aged most horribly oh, uh, sure. of all. Um, yeah. But again, just kind of centers it back on that uh, that idea of the CGI being the most prominent thing. So yeah, as for uh, as for the movie itself, 
I guess we got to talk about what this movie's actually about. <laughs> uh, the problem with all the summaries you see on Wikipedia and stuff for G Savior, yeah, is that they explain the plot in a way that makes it sound like the f- movie makes sense, but most of this background stuff is never actually explained in the film. No, <laughs> so, like it, it's just there's a special energy source that could re that could revolutionize the way light works, I guess. Bioluminescence, uh, yeah, uh, which combines light and heat, uh, whatever that means, <laughs> in a way that could solve a, a basically a, an ongoing food crisis, a food shortage that's happening yeah. uh, among um, that's causing instability in the Earth sphere. And at this point, the political situation has changed considerably since the uh, the Universal Century uh, anime that, that is set here. This is again set in Universal Century Year O two two three. A good 200 years out from uh, whatever the furthest point is in in the main Gundam timeline. Mm. Earth Federation is gone. Uh, Space colonies that were under the Federation's control have autonomy, and they have now sort of, a bunch of them have formed the Congress of Settlement Nations, uh, which is abbreviated quite questionably as consent. Um, (laughs) (laughs) uh, That's that's made up of a whole bunch of the the space colonies or sides. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then you have... um, an opposing force, which are composed of the other ones. And then you have side eight, uh, which is the settlement of Gaia. Uh, that's, that is SFU. Uh, SFU is, uh, is side eight and where most of the action at the end of the film goes. They're a neutral colony. And that is where Cynthia Graves is from. Uh, she's one of the scientists who have made this breakthrough discovering bioluminescence, which can potentially, uh, <laughs> potentially solve this, um, this this food shortage earth earth is covered three quarters in water and therefore the potential of this is unlimited which means i guess they want to turn the oceans of earth into light food? which will t- create light, which food. will make food <laughs> um it, it is just yeah. it is a macguffin it's a macguffin in, yeah, it's a macguffin would... in a in a test tube orange colored yeah. food coloring with an extremely bright cgi glowing effect added to yeah. it in key moments so Cynthia and and like three other four, three others try to sneak onto Mark's ship to steal the prototype back. Yeah, it's, get... a, it's the Hydrogen Lab. Yeah, okay. Um, I, th- I think they're on Earth at that point doing underwater research. It's... Oh, it must be Earth. Yes, yes. Yeah, it must. It yeah. has to be Earth. I don't think yeah. it's explicitly stated, but it has yes. to be Earth. Because they do. Yeah, because he's under way underwater when he saves the pilot in the start. Yes. Yeah, but uh, uh, yeah. Mo- and Mark himself, he is a uh, a former consent soldier uh, who was uh, who basically was forced to quit because uh, he faced a, he otherwise he would face a court martial for not following orders. Um, he was under the command of of Jack Hall, who I, I can't remember what happened. I don't know. It doesn't matter. Who cares? It doesn't matter. Unimportant. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, uh, yeah. Uh, but after the, after the uh, Cynthia and uh, sneaks on board to steal the sample. Um, the hydrogen lab is taken under uh, control of consent. Uh, who it's not clear what their what their jurisdiction actually is, but of course Jack is is uh, taking control there. Um, he is he is just a very typical sneering rival, sneering bad guy, rival character. guy. Yeah, yeah. There's not a whole lot uh, not a whole lot to write home uh, about with him. Um, no. Uh, yeah. So uh, Mark gets curious about. The scientist, he goes to see her. He sneaks his way in through clearance. Uh, and then she tells him her story, and he instantly believes her, and he decides that he's going to break her out. Uh, 
And as they're breaking out, uh, he meets up with uh, the two interns that were with her at the time. And his fiance also catches them and decides that she wants to come along, too. Yeah. Just, <laughs> just because. Yeah. Highlight of this film was was when they were uh, launching off of Earth, uh, heading towards side four. And man, they the way they shook their faces during that scene, they were uh, really trying hard to sell it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, they they arrive on on side four, uh, which is the Orpheum Theater. Very bizarre scene that takes place with that that uh, that bartender they find there. Mm-hmm. Um, who I, I also find it difficult to believe that this sequence was scripted because I can't imagine how something like this would have been scripted because he had he has a gun ready for anyone who doesn't order the right drink. Oh, God, um, yes. You have to order a specific drink. You have to like, order a no, specific I... drink to get Philippe, who's with yeah. can, uh, with the Illuminati, to come yeah. out and, and meet you. And if you don't order the right drink, he just reaches for his gun instead, yeah. apparently, like, and w- presumably would shoot her. And they, she's just, like, stubbornly <gasps> insisting on yeah, she's ordering like, no, the drink I, that she I wants. Want, I want a margarita. <laughs> <laughs> and she's just not understanding. Yeah. Oh, uh, it's, it's, so, yeah. <laughs> it's so weird. <laughs> Basically, Philippe used to be uh, used to be on the same team as Mark. They want him to come out of retirement to pi- to pilot the G Savior. And it, like at this point, when they unveil the G Savior in the Orpheum uh, at the Orpheum Theater, which is that that's just the green screen at the Orpheum Theater that has mm-hmm. the uh, the docking bay with the the Gundam in it. It hasn't even really been established that this what mobile suits are that they fight in mobile suits you you only you, you get very small glances of it beforehand no, nothing is introduced properly no and yeah basically they they head to gaia after which is the the neutral colony and yeah i whatever i, I don't even feel it's worth explaining what happens next it's, no it's I'll, like, I'll, I'll, well let's let's follow mimi's storyline <laughs> yeah least. so um, so mark and cynthia fall in love Yes. While they're in Gaia. So, so convincingly. <laughs> like, immediately upon landing, Mimi goes to go take a shower, and Mark and Cynthia go off, and then uh, she kisses him, and then he kisses her back, and Mimi sees all that and decides the best way to get revenge is to do a genocide. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, like, she's, they're trying to establish themselves as a nonviolent party, and Mimi just shoots some some of the uh, consent soldiers, and starts a war. Yep. Everything is so laughably forced that takes place in this in, in this part. But yeah, the basically the General Garneau, who is, uh, you know, basically essentially in charge of consent, uh, it turns out that the food shortage is very much being manufactured to uh, allow them, you know, c- control the colonies, and they want to stop the bioluminescence thing from getting out because creating unlimited food shortage obviously would make it harder for them to do that. And mm-hmm. they don't care if they create a war um, in the process. So we get the Gundam battle uh, <laughs> that takes place uh, at SFU. We get the the showdown between Mark and uh, his former commanding officer, which is uh, laughable. That, that mm-hmm. seems kind of funny. It's uh, it's they, they get really hammy in that part. And mm-hmm. Mimi ultimately has a, uh, after, again, after, you know, try, trying to in, instigate a genocide. Yeah. Uh, she has a change of heart. She gives them. She she swaps out the bioluminescence back during like a small scuffle on Gaia. And she then break, on, she breaks through a ceiling. Yeah. Uh, and shoves over a child at one point. 
Um, <laughs> yeah, that's another scene yeah. that really stood out. That's, that's how you that's how you know, just in case you weren't sure, that she is supposed to be unlikable <laughs> at this point in the film. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, but when she finds out that it's not actually going to help and it's going to get destroyed, she she swaps it back out. Then she goes on the space shuttle with with the president. While they're in the space shuttle, she tells them she tells the president that uh, she swapped in. The president's like, "We got to go back." And the small hesitation going back leads to them being caught in the crossfire. And everyone in the space shuttle dies while Mimi laughs out loud at yeah. their misfortune. Yeah. Which, again, is very Gundam Seed. Very, yeah. Like, that's very reminiscent of what happens to Flay in that series. <laughs> yeah. Uh, anyway, this movie, uh, I, I mean, I guess this movie's bad. It, uh, <laughs> it, like, every aspect of the plot is, even if you don't consider it a part of Gundam or even draw comparisons to Gundam, it is extremely uninspired really uh, suspend your disbelief too far it takes yeah. huge huge uh liberties in the way it presents anything even remotely scientific yeah it's 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 total crap you can see why <laughs> it's uh not really highly regarded in the uh the, the gundam canon although it was did, did you watch um uh, gundam build fighters i did watch build fighters yes yeah so i think this was the first time in Gundam Build Fighters uh, in mm-hmm. 2013, that they actually acknowledged the G Savior, and I'm, I'm guessing they only acknowledged the mobile suit itself. Yeah, you know what? I think actually Build Fighters and seeing the G Savior there it ignited a lot of talk online, mm-hmm. and I think that's what inspired me to watch it for the first time. Oh, okay, yeah. I think I, looking back, I think that's probably why. Yeah, exactly what they didn't want, but they, <laughs> they took that risk. So yeah, I uh, did. I even have anything else to say? I didn't regret watching it the second time. I think watching it the second time was made things a lot more clear. And maybe, maybe I just focused more because I wasn't like in a party setting. Yeah. This is a movie you put on in the background on New Year's Eve. Yeah. <laughs> it, feel, it feels like the movie that's on space when you're homesick for the day. Even though it never actually aired on space, it feels like it's that movie. Like, it feels like it's completely unimportant, something that would just be thrown on because they have it in their library and they need to fill airtime. It's serviceable on the side of bad, but it's it looks professional enough to actually be on TV. And no one really cares what it's about, besides the fact that it has a space station and shiny Gundams in the end. I think that's really all they wanted from this movie, and they got it. We'll never know the full story behind it, uh, in all likelihood, but it is certainly a tragic one. It seems that, you know, some people had a good time working on it. As I kind of alluded to before, Battlestar Galactica built on this in many ways. And I guess maybe the, maybe the big question is, what is the legacy of Battlestar Galactica? Uh, as, as I said before, it kind of um, set the stage for modern prestige TV in a lot of ways. But you're, a, a lot of, like, the sci-fi sensibilities or, the, or that show's approach to sci-fi, I'm not sure if it's really carried forward into that much at least we're not seeing that much um no like yeah we like we have the expanse which is the closest thing nowadays i think uh but even that just ended as far as like kind of like a a harder more gritty sci-fi world i i think the expanse is the closest to a Battlestar galactica that we have gotten in a long time randy did you have any other thoughts you wanted to share before we uh wrap up uh no uh i just that since Bandai doesn't really care about G-Savior. It's super easy to find. So if you've never seen it, it's worth a watch. Um, seek it out, watch it, and just kind of be baffled by it. it, it it's worth one watch. Yeah. For sure. You can you can fi- you can can even find the DVD not too expensive. I think it's like 35 40 bucks or something. 
It's long out of print. Certainly not a uh, highly valued uh, <laughs> release. No. Uh, it, it is around. Uh, I, I imagine you can still find the Gunpla around, too. It'll take a little digging, but yeah. you can find it. You can find it. I'd love to see, like the, the again, like I said, the behind-the-scenes stuff, uh, if that ever services. Uh, I don't think we're ever going to see that pilot film, but it's, uh, you know, okay to keep a little bit of a mystery on some things in life, mm-hmm. especially something like this. I, I had fun with this one, yeah. actually. I, I surprised more than I thought I would actually watching me, it. Me too. I was I was yeah. really dreading uh, going back and watching this again, uh, especially since you know things suck so much. I was like, <laughs> oh man, the last yeah. thing I want to do is subject myself to this movie <laughs> with everything going on in the world yeah. right now. Uh, but yeah, actually, it was it was kind of fun. Uh, yeah. Takes you kind of takes you back in time to uh, a time that is long gone. Randy, thanks for coming on the show again. Uh, where can people find you online? Uh, you can find me on the internet uh, on Twitter. That's where I do most of my uh, thinkies and my talkies. Uh, that's at uh, twitter.com slash chandyran. And uh, thank you for tuning in to Zon in Canada. You can reach me on Twitter at jbetteridge or email zonincanada at gmail.com. The theme song is by Ultra Kleistron and can be found on his album Packet Flood, uh, which you can find at ultraclystron.com. Please subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or your podcast app of choice. See you again. 